our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false when they were written. Black Americans fought to make them true. Without this struggle, America would have no democracy. Welcome, welcome. This is Simply King Podcast, and this is Rodney Perry, King himself. And you just tuned into the Soulfully Conscious Podcast for humans simply being humans. And today is an interesting one. It's somewhat historical. Well, not somewhat. It's all historical. And I'm glad you're here with me. I'm not going to take too much of you guys' time, as you see from this nice, good duration of this episode. But I had to. I would be remiss as a person who appreciate, appreciates who appreciates history and certainly honors and loves to any moment to honor our ancestors. And it's something that I jotted down and wanted to do for when I realize what year we we're in, realize the significance of what this year was, I had to talk about it. I had to make something about it. And um, if I can continuously, you know, make something else and talk to more people about it, then I certainly will create more content around this. But see this as an introduction. See this as the catalyst to hopefully make you and go and read the project itself. But nonetheless, let's get going. Let's get it going, because as you see, I'm not going to take too much of your time, but let's get to it. Let's start with the Twitter check in. So. As we all know, there has been an epidemic that has struck all of America. We have had to question everything that we know because of this new thing. This new thing that you're asking about, what is that? It's a damn chicken sandwich. Yes, a chicken sandwich. And before we get going, before I even say what I got to say about this whole Popeye's craze epidemic happening right now. I have not had it. And I have not had it because of y'all understand that it's not on me. It's not my fault. I tried. I went to my local Popeye's and there was no line. I thought this was a blessing. Maybe I missed a rush. Maybe I, maybe I'm in a good spot, right? Maybe no one just thought to go to this one, right? Maybe I just don't know. And you know, I get up there to the line, they, and before I could even get out, I want what I want, and then you know why I'm here? They had to go ahead and give me this. Ain't no more chicken. We ran out of buns, too. How can I help you? Now, most days, that's when you just would pull the fuck off and just be like, hell, the hell with it. You could care less at this point, because why should I endure through this pain? I got my mouth set and ready to eat some, to drink some, and you don't got it. Yes, I'm talking to you. You're getting some some auxiliary, some, you know, residual smoke McDonald's for your for none of your machines. Any of your dessert machines never working. You're getting the smoke. Now, Twitter went 
ablaze when this whole thing occurred. I honestly, I, I, I had to I talk to, you know, my good friend Ty, my good sis Ty had to explain him because I asked, I was like, I can't remember. What was the thing that started this whole craze? And the thing that started was there was a photo going around of a list of essentially Trump donators that came from these specific uh, fast food chains. And it was a, you know, dozens of different fast food chains, Chick-fil-A being one of them. Chick-fil-A already has a tumultuous relationship with all of America being that they are, you know, staunch you know, evangelicals and very, very religious and also are against, you know, gay marriage and just just LGBT rights and lifestyle as a whole. So it's always a little bit, you know, what I'm saying it's somewhat of a guilty pleasure to enjoy their food, even though the quality of it is literally a pristine quality. It's almost like, man, this is why do you got to be the one? Why y'all can't be the good whites? Because y'all got great service. Y'all got all these good things happening for y'all. Positive, good sauce, good chicken. You know what I'm saying? Consistency. Good service. How may I serve you? You know what I'm saying? Who you don't get that type of service everywhere you go. That type of stuff it really gets you going. It really hypes you up. It really revs up the the experience. You know what I'm saying? The breakfast is bomb. Them chicken nuggets is bomb. Y'all got grilled nuggets and they kind of cool. You know what I'm saying? But y'all got them bomb little sauces and you got people with different people. You got folks good like like Chick Fil A sauce. You got the Polynesian folks. You got some folks who still on some damn ranch. Why are you at Chick Fil A wanting ranch? That's on you. And then y'all have these waffle fries would go always go very well with the sauce or some ketchup. You know what I'm saying? Y'all got a spicy. Y'all came out with the spicy chicken sandwich and it's just the same size, same quality as the original. That was an unprecedented thing. Until now, Popeye's has upended the whole kind of thing and I've been seeing it. And I trust a lot of people around me. All the people who I trust about their food and taste and things have been signing off on it. They've been saying that it's good. I would love to have joined in on it. But I'm, a, you know, when I do get mine, maybe it's going to be fucking 2020 or something. Because y'all eating all of them, I'm going to have to just, you know, let y'all know when I can let y'all know. All right. Hopefully it's soon. How about that? But I digress. It This is my Twitter check in because it literally took over Twitter and it was genuinely Twitter, black Twitter specifically fought on why this thing got an equivalent of twenty three point five million in revenue. Now, equivalent ad revenue is, you know, it that that's a number that's so imaginary and who can really compute exactly what's what like until what they really made because we know they made a lot of money from that and hopefully those numbers come out just so you can even really tack on and bring home the fact that black twitter really does drive culture and just drives conversation and drives everything we have the power and i think it's essential within this conversation that i'm having the main conversation and monologue that I'm giving and presenting and the information and the, I guess, this very persuasive way that I want to speak about this specific uh, group of articles or journalistic uh, journal, journalistic works being the 1619 Project, I think it's vital that we understand our importance and we have to exert our importance at every single time because we should be talking our shit at every single moment in time. We have to. We need to. It's a must. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the numbers. What else can we do? What else can we really say? Personally, I loved what I tweeted when I seen about this twenty three point five million dollars, not even dollars, dollars. You know what I'm saying? For me, 
this should just be a nice, good little, nice, cool donation to the building fund, whatever proceeds they see. They need to go ahead and give it up to us and put it into the reparations building fund. We need to just start taxing folks, start sending invoices to some of these companies because you need to thank us. And because there is no one individual that you can thank for this usually, unless it's a hashtag that's attached to it and you know for a fact that they are the ones who started a certain trend, like, you know, uh, what is it, Rain of April, who we know started Oscar So White. So she knows she can get a check. We know who to put the check to. She needs to send an invoice to all of the whole Hollywood industry. But because we can't really pinpoint who the hell did this, we need to go ahead and put it in the in the whole pool. This is free parking for us. Give it to us. Give it to us. That's all I'm going to say. All right. Let me get to my praise um, report, my praise him, praise him report. Praise him. Shout out my praise him. Shout out. My praise him shout out for today goes to none other than Nicole Hannah Jones, who is the lead contributor of the subject matter of this today's podcast. And it being that she is an investigative journalist born and raised in Iowa of all places. But she is known to always write these very compelling pieces on civil rights, not only historically, but also modern day. She is significantly a uh, astounding voice of today being renowned and awarded. She is a Peabody. She is a George Polk Award winner, as well as a MacArthur Genius Fellow. She's a genius, y'all, like in the highest form. And I think her being a like I've seen so many different interviews of her. Um, before she even did the 1619 Project. Um, she's also a, a staff writer for uh, New York Times. She deserves all the praise right now for even pushing for this to even be created, even sowing the seed for this to be expounded on and for this year to be something that's commemorated forever. The significance of it that she speaks on about why this was needed is such a beautiful sentiment. She attaches herself into this story in so many ways by just talking about her tumultuous relation to the American flag and the American ideals to this historical, really, recount of the first African slaves to touch these shores. But I'll get even deeper and give you the details of exactly, you know, kind of what the 1619 Project, at least specifically, I'll give, you know, details on her intro uh, essay to the 1619 Project, and we can get it on going. But Nicole Hannah-Jones deserves all the praise right now because she did something that I believe everyone probably no one probably even thought of doing because I didn't hear too many people even this on the pipeline of things that needed to be done. But this being something that she's seen is very significant. The fact that is here and is now and is here for us to consume is a blessing. And it's something that I think she should be praised and honored for forever. And if she doesn't do anything else, honestly, obviously, she's going to do so many more things. This is her magnum opus to date. This is such a significant thing, and I believe it's going to certainly inspire and educate so many minds. Let's get into the 
as I stated before, I'm going to certainly inspire everyone, try to my best to inspire everyone to go and read this thing. You can actually see in the description of this episode, there's a PDF that directs you right to a copy of this, um, the 1619 project, which um, essentially it's beautiful that, you know, and I'll talk about the significance of everything, but it's beautiful that they provided this thing somewhat free. <laughs> you know, it's, like I'm, I'm, I read this. I didn't have to do it a subscription. I didn't have to go through any of that. And I hope that they, you know, encourage people like myself, creators and 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 you know, writers and people who just care about spreading, you know, good information and healthy information um, to do these types of things and talk about these types of things, which I know they do. They literally said that you know you should have, you know, I think it was sixteen nineteen uh, project brunch. That was actually like trending for a certain um, on the release date of this people coming together to literally just come together to, to read and talk about it. And I think that's something that we should continuously do. And um, and I hope that this serves as something that people can see as a perspective and, a, and something that just is a part of the conversation. But I'll give you a, my overview of what she was giving and I'll give you a few excerpts of some of the things that she said to, you know, kind of to give you a real little, little taste of her writings and the things that she points out from a historical standpoint, because she really just was laying out facts. That's the thing about it. It's not like she had to sit here and put some political slant on this or some sense of uh, of what she wants to like push from some type of political or some type of ideological uh, standpoint of trying to condemn America to this like to as if it's just, you know, this terribly, you know, downtrodden type of country. I think she just lays out the facts and the facts are there. The facts can be found. She gives you dates. She gives you names. It's beautiful. It's a great project. But this is the way that she really starts it. She starts off by essentially um, laying out a story and laying out her own past, um, interweaving a past that I believe we all somewhat share talking about our parents and the, the knowledge of what we do know of our parents as far back as we can go. She talks about how we she has line, a lineage that literally we all know goes back to slavery, but she knows to the most point that it ends up in um, Greenwood, Mississippi. Her grandmother being, you know, literally the product of sharecroppers and them, her father being born in Greenwood, Mississippi as well, but also having this interesting life as a whole leading to this very interesting, uh, essentially, reverence for the American flag. And I think it holds itself as somewhat the kind of like the corner, the kind of like centerpiece for her essay as, you know, speaking towards the symbol, the symbolism of what the American flag is and how we really have never (laughs) really met those ideals fully. And she talks about how father loves his flag and she'll he'll literally replace this flag if it ever gets tattered and all these different things. And then moves on to kind of, you know, interweave into the facts of what's going on. And the first thing that she kind of, you know, addresses and brings out is essentially how it all began and what essentially occurs. And, um, and the, and I think that, brilliance of it all is just kind of giving you why, like she's really just laying out why these things are so, so vital and so important. And I just feel like 
she just lays out why African-Americans made this country what it is today. And I'll start with just this first uh, excerpt is in August 1619, just 12 years after the English settled Jamestown, Virginia, one year before the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock and some 157 years before the English colonists even decided they wanted to form their own country. The Jamestown colonists bought 20 to 30 enslaved Africans from English pirates. Pirates. And the pirates had stolen them from a Portuguese slave ship that had forcibly taken them from what is now the country of Angola. So it so the first so our first, you know, and I think there should be some context put into it because 1619 is a year that, you know, she definitely draws out in other interviews that she's done where she speaks on this being the like initiation of American of American slave, you know, slave trade and the American slave trade, because obviously there was, you know, I believe slave um, slaves that were already within Florida, already within the Caribbean by this time. And of course, in South America. So it's it's really speaking on North on U.S. history. It's really about all of that. So just wanted to put that into context. Um, Then I jumped to. I had to make a light. I had to bring out this specific uh, comment where she just kind of goes on to speak about the kind of like all the literally the wealth that was created because of this kind of initiating this industry into the world. And I think it's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy. And it's fascinating at the same time that it's this much that has occurred from this. Like we've literally gotten so much from this one industry. This whole country has gained so much from this one industry that we still see still to this day. And I had picked out one specific excerpt that says this. They built vast fortunes for white people north and south, because I think folks from the north always love to just, you know, push on the 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 plight or the 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 tattered past of America onto the South as if they're the ones who were the, you know, just the bad guys who were, you know, being all evil and enslaving people. That's not the case. And I think she addresses this in the best type of way, always keeping people honest, keeping the North honest specifically. Um, They built vast fortunes for white people North and South. At one time, the second richest man in the nation was a Rhode Island slave trader. Profits from black people's stolen labor helped the young nation pay off its war debts, finance some of the most prestigious university. It was relentless buying, selling, insuring and financing of their bodies and the products of their labor that made Wall Street a thriving banking, insurance and trading sector and New York City, the financial capital of the world. End quote. I think, you know. She starts off just talking big stuff in this. You know what I'm saying? She just she just laying it out, giving you all the good little facts. You know, she tells a story about how how essentially you have all these presidents, the first 10 presidents who all were slave owners and most of them weren't even born here and just speaks on how all the founding, all the founding, you know, fathers 
most of those people who are lauded and seen as, you know, the people who have made the country into it is had some connection and some benefit from slavery. And I think that's something that we cannot shake. We should not shake. We should talk directly to talk directly about. But I'll move on. Um, The next thing that I had to go to that I think was very, very interesting and something that I didn't even really even think about. I really didn't even think about how, you know, in, in terms of like the sequence of events from a historical standpoint, because I always knew that, you know, Britain had, you know, abolished slavery or they felt a way about slavery a little bit earlier than everyone else, or a little bit earlier than America specifically. Uh, and so I was like, oh, OK. So she essentially points that out and not only points that out, but she says this as well. And I'll read. In other words, we may never have revolted against Britain if the founders had not understood that slavery empowered them to do so, nor if they had not believed that independence was required in order to ensure that slavery would not continue. It is not incidental that 10 of the nation's first 12 presidents were enslavers, and some might argue that this nation was founded not as a democracy, but as a slavocracy. There you go. And she, she literally just points out how, like, because we, so much money was getting made by 17, by the 1770s, it got to a point to where the founding fathers in America and the founding fathers of America were looking at, at it like, what the, you know, I, I could care less, you know what I'm saying, what uh, Britain's now feelings about slavery are becoming because they seeming like they were about to abolish slavery overseas. We don't care because we want to continue to do what we want to do because it's accrued so much wealth. By this time, you're talking about 66% of the, the almost the world's, uh, you know, supply of cotton was coming from the U.S. And this is, you know, essentially almost almost 100 years, uh, over, over 100 years of the first um, 20 enslaved Africans to come into these shores. They already became a world power in industry, a world power in a cash crop that they they would essentially damn near monopolize. And it literally gave them the power and the force to literally be able to, to succeed from a whole nation. Like, like I really feel like people got to grasp that, but I ain't going to stay too much on it. I ain't going to stay on my soapbox too, too much on it. I'm going to keep it moving and give you another excerpt. All right. Then then she kind of transpires and jumps and she kind of jumps up and talks, uh, talks about everything in between. Talks about civil war, those significant things that occurred within civil war, how, you know, people were, you know. Essentially how what started, what it was really about, it really addresses what it's really about, has quotes straight from Lincoln. And I think. What was interesting to me was what I didn't um, know was Lincoln was under the impression that after he came to a point to where he believed that it was going to be economically sound in the best interest of America to free the slaves and abolish slavery. Essentially, he thought that he needed to charter a certain amount of ships to be able to send people back because he assumed that people would want to go back. And this is what she addresses in that. And I read nearly three years after that White House meeting with five. With five of the. Uh, let me I think I skipped a part. I skipped a uh, comment. 
let me read that first. Essentially, in um, around in August, during kind of like a, probably about like a year after uh, the start, start of the uh, Civil War, there was essentially like a commission. He invited five black, uh, I guess, representatives <laughs> to the White House, which was not a common thing to um, to talk about what the hell was going on. And I guess to be consulted on what was going on. And this is what Lincoln said. Lincoln got right to the, got right to it. He informed his guests that he had gotten Congress to appropriate funds to ship black people once free to another country. Why should they leave this country? This is perhaps the first question for proper consideration. Lincoln told them, you and we are different races. Your race suffer very greatly, many of them by living among us, while ours suffer from your presence. In a word, we suffer on each side. You can imagine the heavy silence in that room as the weight of what the president said momentarily stole the breath of these five black men. It was 243 years to the month since the first of their ancestors had arrived on these shores before Lincoln's family long before most of the white people insisting that this was not their country. End quote. Then I jumped to what I was uh, what I introduced before. Nearly three years after that White House meeting, General Robert E. Lee surrenders at Appomattox. By summer, the Civil War was over and four million black Americans were suddenly free. Contrary to Lincoln's view, most were not inclined to leave, agreeing with the sentiment of a resolution against black con colonization put forward at a convention of black leaders in New York some decades before. This is our home and this is our country. Beneath is the side lie the bones of our fathers. Here we were born. Here we will die. This is I feel like the first probably like other than the Civil War being a action. But these were, the, I guess, the another Example and symbol of how American, how Americanness was claimed by black people from the jump. Like even when we were sitting there coming into form and coming into our own freedom, we still felt like we, we claimed our Americanness because we had to fight for it, because we had to per persevere through it. We had to figure out how the hell we're going to make it to the end of it all. And I think it's just a beautiful thing. I just think it's a hell of a, a just the strength that they show is crazy to me. It's just crazy to me. And um, then she kind of goes on and kind of talks about uh, Reconstruction and the benefits of Reconstruction being that that because of the South, you know, losing this fight, it immediately created this sense of because Reconstruction helped everybody. Reconstruction especially helped black people. And she addresses some things that I didn't even really know. And just really the significance of how many, you know, black legislators who were voted into, who were voted in and were making things happen, were getting things done. Like, it was just ridiculous how many things were actually happening because there were black, uh, black officials uh, getting into Congress and essentially making so many things happen. Um and they were working together. That's the crazy part. It seemed like there was a lot of things that were happening where people were working together in the South, making things happen. 
making things happen. And I, I, I pull out this specific quote where it says, I, I read, black legislators also helped pass the first compulsory education laws in the region. Southern children, black and white, were now required to attend schools like their northern counterparts. Just like five years into just five years into Reconstruction, every Southern state had enshrined the right to a public education for all children into its constitution. In some states like Louisiana, South Carolina, small numbers of black and white children briefly attended schools together. Led by black activists and a Republican Party pushed left by the blatant recalcitrance of white rights, white, what does it say, white? Yeah, of civil rights legislation Congress has ever passed. So it literally, like there was a moment right after the war, right after the Civil War, and it's crazy to me to even think that this was even possible at this time because you would think it would be so much tension within the South, which it obviously was. The fact that there was progress happening in leaps and bounds because before this, education was not even required for white people, for white people. For people working together and for people pushing for this to happen because there was a certain large, there was a very, very large disparaging um, sense of, you know, illiteracy within the black population at this time because black people were literally not even able to read or write. This was something that they literally implemented that benefited everyone in the region. Everyone within the region. And then she essentially goes in to talk about how <laughs> Jim Crow kind of fucked up all that progress and really gave really it only lasted, you know, a good, you know, less than a decade of reconstruction where reconstruction where black people benefited um, from it truthfully. And, and then she kind of goes on and on to kind of brings us out into certain things that occurred and, you know, just talks about how calculated and how there was literally a science, there was science put behind Jim Crow and why Jim Crow literally brought us down and slowed us down was literally one of the biggest roadblocks that lasted for another hundred years within this 400 years that we're talking about. And I think it's very vital that we have to like bring in and think about it like what in the hell is wrong with y'all? But there was so much hate because she draws out the reason why, because she says it was a psychological thing. If now that we are out of this, this, you know, we've already kind of, you know, how can we make sense of slavery? How can we make ourselves still seem like we're good? And so they went back to those things that justified a lot of those founding fathers justified when they wrote those, when they wrote the Constitution, when they wrote all these different things to make it seem as if, oh, they're just a certain class of people. They're a certain race of people. They're not, you know, they're not up to par and they justify all their very visceral actions thereafter. And there was literally state and federal sanctioned violence and subjugation put onto black people that I think still to this day, we are still trying to unravel and rewrite the laws on. But the last statement that I came up with that I came, that I bookmarked was truly just speaking on how through all of this, through all that she addresses within this, and it's about, I think about 10 pages, starting from page 16 all the way to page 26, 
it just trips me the hell out to think about it because we really, truthfully, truthfully made it, did our best to make the most out of this. Um, and this is all, I, this is the last uh, comment I'll say, and then I'll wrap this up and send it on. Um, um, yeah, let me go ahead and send it on. And I read just a few months earlier, they had families and farms and lives and dreams. They were free. They had names, of course, but their enslavers did not bother to record them. They had been made black by those people who believed they were white and they were heading black equaled slave and slavery in America required turning human beings into property by stripping them of every element they that made them individuals. This process was called seasoning in which people stolen from the Western and Central Africa were forced and often tortured to stop speaking their native tongues and practicing their native religions. But as sociologist Glenn Bracey wrote, out of the ashes of white denigration, we gave birth to ourselves. For as much as white people tried to pretend black people were not chattel, and so the process of the process of seasoning instead of erasing identity served an opposite purpose. In the void, we forged a new culture of our own. And just because I like, just because I want to, I love this part of it, and she's wrapping it up, but I just want to keep going and give you another piece, give you a little bit more. And I continue to read. Today, our very manner of speaking recalls the Creole languages that enslaved people innovating in order to communicate both with Africans speaking various dialects and the English speaking people who enslaved them. Our style of dress, the extra flair, stems back to the desires of enslaved people, shorn of all individuality, to exert their own identity. Enslaved people would wear their hat in a jaunty manner or not their headscarves intricately. Today's avant-garde nature of black hairstyles and fashion displays a vibrant reflection of enslaved people's determination to feel fully human through self-expression. The improvisational quality of black art and music comes from a culture that, because of constant disruption, could not cling to convention. Black naming practices, and this is where I'll wrap up so often impugned by mainstream society are themselves in the act of resistance. Our last names belong to the white people we once were owned who owned us. That is why the instant, the insistence of many black Americans, particularly those most marginalized to give our children names that we create that are either that are neither European nor from Africa, a place we have never been is an act of self-determination. My thing is, y'all need to read this. This is a great piece of work. I think it's so vital to where we are right now. I think it's so vital to what I feel like what the world needs. And I'll wrap up and go ahead and go ahead and send it on. I'm going to send it on, send it on, send it on. And essentially how I feel about all of this is that we are the generation to make this happen. We are the generation to bring us out of, we, we, we're, we're supposed to finish the job that reconstruction started by getting what we are owed, fighting for what we are owed, because we have been the most American. 
She addresses this in the most beautiful and most eloquent way by literally laying out the facts on why we are the most American of anyone in this nation. Because we did not just fight for ourselves. We're the most patriotic, the most American, the most everything. Because we, out of anyone else, have the most to be upset about, the most to be enraged about. But yet we persevere. Resilience is within us. But struggle is is not all that we should expect to face. We should never expect to be in a world where struggle is is just this inevitable is not only inevitable, but encouraged. I feel like journeys that always come with some unexpected um, challenge and it is what builds character in the process, obviously, as we climb. Not the constant onslaught of oppression, either individually or systematically. I believe Nicole Hannah Jones was absolutely correct in asserting that we are the most American of any group in this country. We are meant to push forward and succeed because nature and the universe is showing us all of this. With the browning of America, with the <laughs> with the fact that we're still here advancing past almost every single person, every single group in so many different ways, we're still becoming the first person of color to do certain things. Black women are the most educated in out of every demographic, even though they have everything against them. They're literally on the bottom of the totem pole, but yet they're the most educated. When that's the, that's what they say that you need. That's the bootstrap that they're talking about. That's a that's a, a one of the pull ups that they're talking about. But I I feel like everyone needs to consume this. This piece is something that I believe is vital and necessary to where we are today. I believe that it's truly just a very great read, something that I feel like people should all just get, collect this, keep this and remember this. And um, because we want who a lot of us won't be here to see 500. That's what I want y'all to get. We won't. A lot of us will not be here to see the 500 year commemorating. 1619. So we are a special, special group. We're a special class. See us as a movie. And every, you know, action sci-fi adventure where there's some, you know, random person who doesn't even know they're significant. It's something that 5,000, however many thousands of years has to transpire for this one moment to occur and that will change your life. I'm saying now the moment is here. The significance has been written. Let's consume it. Let's take it in. And let's show the world why we're here and what we're supposed to do. That's all I feel. That's how I feel about it. And I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you all for continuously supporting the Simply King podcast. You should listen to me everywhere podcasts are available um, in whatever way that you choose. Shout out to Cole Johnson for having me on to his podcast. Make sure you check out that episode. It was a very, very dope, dope episode called Revelation is podcast is called revelations the link is in that episode's uh description but you'll also see the links in this to uh teaching um curriculums as well as um 
a link to the PDF so you can read the 1619 project. If you have an iPhone, can, you can put it right into your iBooks. I believe you probably do the same thing on Android so they can probably, you know, read it a little bit easier. Um, or try to find a copy somewhere of New York Times to be able to have a physical copy if that's your thing. Um, if you don't know now, you know you can follow me everywhere. Podcasts are available. Make sure you subscribe and like and review. Need those reviews. Need you to rate for me. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, let me know. Make sure you share with everyone you know. And I appreciate y'all. This is the Soulfully Conscious Podcast for Humans Simply Being Humans. I'm Rodney Perry, and this is Simply King. Don't judge my energy, I no get time for no enemy. Don't repay for later.